All right, while you are turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13, I wanted to talk about um, our 21-day challenge for this year. We've been talking about not necessarily New Year's resolutions, but I'm certain that every single one of us have some areas in our life, especially spiritual areas, that we need to get back on track and establish some godly habits. And they say that it takes uh, approximately 21 consecutive days in order to uh, at least remotely develop a good habit. And so uh, we're challenging you to um, be faithful in your Bible reading daily, as well as your prayer life. And if you'll just focus for the first 21 days of the year, then you might just find that uh, the rest of the year might pretty much take care of itself. But it's certainly worth a try. Say, well, Pastor, I am, um, I'm five days or I'm four days behind and I didn't know about your challenge. Well, you know what? You can certainly make up for four days quite easily. Uh, we have several systems of uh, systematic Bible reading that we make available to you. Uh, we have Bible reading calendars on the tables back in the back of the auditorium. That gives you a way to go through the Old Testament once a year, the New Testament twice, the book of Psalms twice, and the book of Proverbs uh, 12 times once a month. And so that's a great way if you like a little bit of variety in your reading. I know there are other people that like to start out in Genesis and just go through all the way to uh, Revelation. We have this Bible reading chart that's available. You can find that in the Information Center out in the vestibule and... um, That will get you through the Bible once through the calendar year, and we also encourage you to read a proverb uh, every day and get through the book of Proverbs once uh, per month. And so make sure that you uh, avail yourself of that. If you're just an average reader, then you can do that required reading in anywhere between 15 and 18 minutes a day. If you're a slightly faster reader, you can do it in 12 or 13 minutes a day. And so if you're four days behind, it's just not going to take very much to make it up. Whenever I've gotten behind in my Bible reading, uh, here's what I like to do. Uh, if I, let's say, for instance, I'm starting today and I'm four years behind, I would open up my Bible reading calendar and I would read today. Did I say something? Four years. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I hope that's not a subconscious confession. <laughs> if, if I'm four days behind in the year and extremely eloquent, no, <laughs> um, I would read uh, today's Bible reading, the fifth, uh, and, and I would get that checked off, and then whatever time that I have, I would go and make up the first and get whatever I can checked off. Tomorrow, I would do the 6th of January and then see what I can do. And it's not going to take just a few minutes extra reading to get those four days caught up. So you don't have to feel like that I've got this debt. And by the way, when you get behind in something, don't treat it like a debt. The the devil will come along and he'll just get you to focus on, oh, I'm so far behind and just just start where you ought to be start and just just move on. And sometimes you just got to forget about the past and whatever the failures are and get back on track, and don't let the devil take something that God intends to be a blessing and make it a burden. And so something's better than nothing, and so uh, just do whatever you can, and uh, I guarantee you, any time that you spend in the Word of God, any time that you spend in prayer, it's going to be beneficial, it's going to be a blessing, and it's going to draw you ever closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's some Bible reading systematic options that we have provided for you. We're in 1 Samuel chapter number 13, and uh, it is exciting to have a new year, a brand new slate. Uh, We were talking on radio, Brother Ben Smoker and Brother Glenn uh, joined me on Salt and Light this past Thursday. We talked a little bit about New Year's resolution, but I was thinking about how that in the Old Testament, the Lord has a year of jubilee, a year of release, it's also called. And I, I don't, I don't, necessarily know why God does it that way, but I have a feeling that God knows human nature. I know that God knows human nature, but I think that that's probably part of why he has that year of release. He knows that 
our lives get so out of whack, out of, we get so much dysfunction built up that we can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. We don't even know how to dig ourselves out of the mess that we're in. And sometimes you just have to cut your losses and say, you know what, whatever happened yesterday, I can't fix it, I can't undo it, I can't make up for it. I'm just going to start fresh. And that's what I like about a brand new year. I can I can put, as Brother James preached uh, last Tuesday night, 2019 is dead. We can bury it. And 2020 has been born, and we can begin to nurture a brand new year and just see what God has for us in 2020. Wouldn't it, isn't it exciting to think that maybe this could be the year that the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to get us? I don't want to be sleeping when that happens, spiritually speaking. I don't want to be unprepared. Uh, I'd like for uh, Jesus to come back and um, my heart and my life be right with him. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the Mount Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had in abomination with the Philistines. And the people were called together after Saul to Gilgal. You know, if I could pause right there, I wonder if a real man of God showed up in Statesville. I mean a real man of God, like the old-timey men of God. And set up a tent or went out into one of these open fields and began to preach like John the Baptist. And a bunch of people started coming out to hear him and started getting saved and their lives started getting changed. I wonder what that would do to these modern contemporary churches that think that the only way to reach people is with a rock concert. I guarantee you they'd probably start getting a little bit afraid that maybe they're going to lose their influence. In verse number 5 it says, And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and the people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash eastward from Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, that would be a narrow place, where the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad, And Gilead, as for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. If you could kind of picture what's going on, uh, just to kind of paraphrase everything. Jonathan goes out, and he smites a garrison garrison of the Philistines. They get upset. They thought, you just picked a fight with with the wrong nation. They gather ten times the army that Israel had. They go up against Israel. And many of the people hide themselves, high places, low places, caves, wherever they could hide. The other, they bail. They leave the country. They go, they get out of Dodge because they don't want to be here around this battle. And the faithful ones, the ones that didn't hide, the ones that didn't run, they're following Saul. And the Bible says here that they are trembling. They're scared. They're worried. They are stressed. Skip down with me to verse number 19. We're not going to talk about Saul's uh, foolishness in this message today. We're going to just focus on the battle between Israel and the Philistines, for at least for today's message. Down in verse number 19, it says, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. 
But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. So basically, they're going to the Philistines to have their garden utensils sharpened so that they can use them against the Philistines' swords, bows and arrows, spears, actual artillery. It says in verse number 21, Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks, for the axes and to sharpen the goads. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. But with Saul and Jonathan, his son, was there found. So you have two actual weapons of warfare among the entire army of Israel. One's in the hand of Saul and the other is in the hand of Jonathan. Everybody else just went to the shed and grabbed whatever they could to use it as an instrument of war. Look at chapter 14 and verse number 1. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. We skip down to verse number 6. It says, And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart, turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. Skip down to verse number 11. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they have hid themselves. The men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. That's probably paraphrased. I'm sure that uh, being, uh, being heathen soldiers, they probably had a few other choice words to say about Jonathan and his armor bearer as well. He said, Come on up, we'll show you a thing. Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer slew after him. And the first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within, as it were, an half acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow. A half an acre. If you took probably the square footage of this upstairs building here, you'd be looking at somewhere in the neighborhood a half an acre. Not a very large area. One, really, I guess you could say one and a half men. The armor bearer is not a soldier. He's just usually a servant. Usually it's a younger lad who bears the armor. And so he's slow, he's slewing after Jonathan. So I get the impression that Jonathan's the one that's knocking them down, and the ones that are maybe not completely dead, the armor bearers coming back and making sure that they're completely dead. You can make an argument that this is 20 against one. One sword against a garrison, a trained garrison of military men who were used to using their weapons, and God brought a great victory through Jonathan and through his armor bearer. Verse 15, it says, And there was trembling in the host, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers, they also trembled, and the earthquake, so it was a very great trembling. It appears to me, and by the way, this trembling, this is not the children of Israel trembling, this is the Philistines trembling. Think what one man just did. He just slew a whole garrison, one against 20. They're all dead. The rest of the armies of the Philistines, they hear about it. Their heart is now afraid. They're trembling. And it sure does look to me like that God might have been 
cheering that on. The earthquake. I, it, it sure seems to me like that God was giving His stamp of approval for a warrior, a soldier, who trusted Him in order to win the battle. Verse 16, And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. Now the Philistines, not only are they afraid, but now they're attacking each other. Now, this isn't the message, but please file this away. Fear, especially unfounded fear, is a very dangerous thing. Fear can cause you to attack people that are not your enemies. Someone once said, what we don't understand, we fear. What we fear, we attack. And I wonder how many family problems and church problems find at the root, not necessarily sin, but just simply fear. People get afraid and bad things happen. Now I want you to turn to, uh, look at verse number 22 of the same chapter. Excuse me, verse number 20. It says, And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. And there was a great discomfiture. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Sounds to me like that God is giving some confidence to those that were previously afraid. Verse 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. I'd like to speak to you this morning on the subject, it's about time someone stood up. Brother Godfrey, I'd like to ask you if you would stand and ask the Lord's blessings upon the message. Amen. Thank you, Brother Godfrey. It's about time that someone stood up. In today's text, we see that the, the people of God here, I believe, are very similar to the modern church. They're in bondage to the world. And I believe that the modern Christian today is in much bondage to the world. The Bible says that we are not to love the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world... The love of the Father is not in Him. We have many, many Christians today that their lives are typified by a love affair with the world. Yes, we, we, we don't say that we hate God and we believe in God. And uh, if someone asked us if we're saved, we'd give all the right answers. We could pass the test. But the average modern Christian today really in their heart of hearts, they're enduring church, they're enduring God, they're checking Him off their list so that they can go and do what they really enjoy, and that's be out there with the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is the state of the modern church today. Just like the children of Israel were in bondage to the Philistines. Uh, the, the children of Israel here had a minimal arsenal. They didn't have many real weapons. I read here in this book that the Bible says that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I've got a book here that is a two-edged sword, and it is made out of the best steel that could ever be made. Uh, my wife uh, got some new knives for Christmas from her husband. And uh, there, there's some nice... Brother Glenn's been trying to get me to, to buy these knives for my wife for, for quite some time. They're made in Germany. And, um, and I mean, I, I just thought, there can't be that much difference. I mean, you take a high-quality knife, a low, just means the low-quality knife, you just got to sharpen it more often. That's what I'm thinking. Well, my wife decided, you know what, I, I, I do a lot of cooking. It's something that I enjoy doing. Maybe I should just get some good tools. 
she has been using those knives now for a week, and, and I'm, I'm not kidding you, I think it makes the food better. I, I don't know what, maybe, maybe as she slices all of those things, it just makes a, a, a cleaner cut so that all of the vegetables absorb the flavors. I don't know, all I know is since I bought her those knives, the food has just reached another level. But amazingly so, she just, every time that she's using those knives and I'm walking by the kitchen, she's like, oh, this is just so, everything. And, and, and I've tried not to make her mad ever since then, too. <laughs> One of those knives, you know, anyhow. But the, the children of Israel, listen, I've got, a, I've got a sword right here that is made out of perfect steel, and it has a perfect edge, and the children of Israel did not have a sharp sword. Hey, we live in a day and age when every single year there's the latest and the greatest popular Bible version in the English language, and you know what the devil has done? He has taken away the sharp swords out of the children of Israel's hands, out of the Christian's hands, I should say. Listen, I, I if you want to use a, a goad or a coulter or an axe, if you want to use that for battle, hey, other Bible versions have some value. You, you can find something that's easier to understand. You can find something that, well, I like the way that this one's written. Or you can just choose one that is a sharp and a powerful sword. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to battle, I want the best sword that I can find. And I got news for you. I don't want a watered-down version of the Word of God. I would much rather elevate my understanding to God's level than to try to take God's level of understanding and bring it down to mine. I don't know about you, that just sounds like a foolish thing to do. The children of Israel had a minimal arsenal. Uh, They were filled with anxiety and stress. Boy, have you ever seen a generation where even God's people today have more anxiety and more stress and more depression? Do you know that heaven is still the same heaven today as it was a hundred years ago? Do you know that all of the things that we have in Christ, when we get saved, we get everything that the Apostle Paul got? Do you know if you are a born-again believer, you got everything that the Apostle Peter, everything, every, every man of God that's ever been born again, you and I got the very same salvation. Nothing lacking. We have the same blessings of God. Why do we need to waller around in a world of anxiety and stress and discouragement and depression? We're saved. Our sins are forgiven. We're on our way to heaven. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Hey, child of God, we don't need to live like the children of Israel under the oppression of the Philistines. How about discouragement and cowardice? Man, when's the last time that you saw a Christian, a child of God, stand up and say something against wickedness and worldliness? I, I, I observed an incident just, just the other day of somebody that I knew that stood up and just got fed up with Christians acting worldly. Boy, they stood up and they said something. You know what? When you stand up against stuff that's wrong and wicked, guess what happens? You're the one that takes the flack. And that's the state of the church today. I guarantee you those that went off trembling and those that bailed and went over to the country of Gad and so forth, they're probably mumbling and murmuring. It's like, why did that Jonathan have to stir the pot? Don't you know it? They're they're having to leave their home and go hide from the Philistines. And I guarantee you they are disgruntled about, uh, about Jonathan and that armor bearer going in and stirring up the Philistines. You know what their problem was? Is they just had a little teeny tiny God. And the big God that wants to give victory the whole time was saying, hey, I'll give you victory, but I'm just looking for someone who will stand up and fight. Praise the Lord. 
Jonathan and the armor bearer, they said, hey, it doesn't matter how many of them there are. God doesn't care what the numbers are. If He wants us to win the victory, guess what? We're going to win. Thank God for that. The Philistines outnumbered Saul and Israel over 10 to 1. Jonathan was outnumbered 20 to 1. But you know what the Bible says in Proverbs 28, verse number 1? It says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Hey, you don't have to be a believer today. You don't have to be a Christian that goes and hides in the the cave. You don't have to go flee and try to get out of dodge and avoid the battle. The battle is the Lord's and God wants to wrought a great victory. He's just looking for you to stand up and be willing to fight. Edmund Burke is attributed to this statement. You've probably heard it, no doubt. Many people have been attributed to saying this. Abraham Lincoln, um, uh, Winston Churchill, I believe uh, that um, Theodore Roosevelt was attributed to saying this. But it goes like this. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. You don't have to join the other side. You just have to not be willing to join God's side. And we're living in that day and age, brothers and sisters, where good men are doing nothing. Don't you get sick and tired of just doing nothing? Don't you get sick? I know what people are saying. Well, I'm just one person. I can't make a difference. Well, the problem is everybody's thinking that way. You know, of the of all the 3,000 of the armies of Israel, the king including, the only one that didn't think that way was Jonathan. But Jonathan was willing to stand up and do something about all of the wickedness around him. And God not only gave him a great victory, but that encouraged everybody else and all of the dissenters came back and all of those that were fearful came crawling out of the caves and said, you know what? I think maybe God can and will do something if we're just willing to let Him use us. Folks, boldness is not something that's mustered up. It's something that is developed from above. It's, I guess we would say it's not mustered up, it's prayed down. If we will just have the faith to trust God... God can do miraculous things in our life, but He's not going to do it if we will not or if we refuse to trust Him. So if we're going to stand up, the first thing, number one, that's important is that we have a clear conscience. Now, when I say a clear conscience, I'm not talking about a perfect pedigree. There is nobody, I am certain, in this building today that would say, hey, my life's perfect. I guarantee you, every single one of us, if we were to look in the mirror, examine our life, we would say that I am not where I ought to be for God. I mentioned this, I think, last week or the week before. If you were to have seen me 34 years ago, and by the way, this month is, this month is the anniversary, 34 years since I surrendered to the Lord. I, I had just turned 20 years old. I'm getting ready to turn 54. And I totally, lock, stock, and barrel, surrendered my heart and my life to the Lord 34 years ago. Everything hasn't been peachy. Everything hasn't been wonderful. There have been times where it has been rough, but I wouldn't change it for a single thing. I highly recommend living a life surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been so good to me. He has blessed in so many ways, and He has seen me through failures and faults, and he's even seen me through a few victories and successes here and there, all of the good, bad, and ugly, everything in between, the touchdowns, the fumbles, you name it, God has been so good these past 34 years, and I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade one day of serving the Lord for the entire four or five years that I was out there in the world serving the devil. A clear conscience. You know, you can have a clear conscience no matter what you did yesterday. You can have a clear conscience no matter what you did two hours ago. Just simply by getting your heart and your life right with the Lord. Hey, if you're not familiar with 1 John 1.9, you ought to get really familiar with it. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't you glad for that? Man, when I mess up, God has a reset button that I can wipe the slate clean. Thank God the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. A clear conscience. Someone once said that conscience makes cowards of us all. Why are Christians so feeble and why are Christians so uh, so timid? I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that there are very few Christians that are actually righteous. You know, you take somebody who's walking with God and living righteous, when they see something in Christianity today that's worldly and wicked, you know what? It stirs their heart. And they get upset. I, I, I know I do. When I see wickedness and worldliness among God's people, when I see pastors behaving like the world, when I see people that are in positions of spiritual leadership and they're not walking the way that they ought to, uh, to and, 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 and flaunting it. I'm not talking about just human weakness. I'm talking about flaunting it like they're proud of it. When I see that, it stirs my heart. And, and I, I'd have to say that I get just a little bit angry about it. And And you know what? the modern Christian looks at the preacher or the parent or the righteous Christian who's living right that gets a little bit upset at wickedness and worldliness, and guess what they call them? Oh, you're just a Pharisee. You know what the problem is? They haven't even studied the Bible, and they don't even know what a Pharisee is. They just heard their friends use that statement against people that are criticizing their wickedness and worldliness, and so that's my way out, to just make the righteous the bad one, just like the children of Israel were no doubt probably making Jonathan the bad guy as they had to flee their homes. A clear conscience. The Bible says in 1 John 2, verse 28, And now little children... Abide in Him that when He shall appear, we have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. We can have confidence in our Christian life simply by abiding in Him. Now, I'm thankful that God made me a promise that when Jesus came into my heart and life, when God came in, that he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm glad that I have that security. If you're saved and you don't know what the Bible teaches, hey, it is a great blessing to know that my salvation going to heaven is not dependent upon my performance. It's only dependent upon the performance of God's Son, Jesus Christ. But there is a truth, there is a doctrine of abiding in Christ. While I can't leave him and go to hell, I can certainly depart from Christ in my daily walk. And when that happens, then I will lose my confidence. My conscience will make me second guess. I will not have any boldness in my Christian life. And I'll go hide in a cave because I don't want to face the battle. 1 John 3, verse number 21 says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. You know all the little things that you allow in your life that kind of, you, you figured out a way to justify it or to explain it. It's like, well, you know, this is no big deal. You know, I don't see anything wrong with this. The fact that you're saying that is proof that it's probably bothering your conscience. It may be, it may be music that you listen to. It might be, it might be a movie that you watch. It may be a friendship that you have that you know isn't spiritually healthy for you. You may know that that friend is kind of dragging you away from the Lord or at least tugging a little bit. Have you ever considered that whatever enjoyment that you're getting from that thing, whatever it is, that it's probably just not worth it? That you could have peace, that you could have joy, that you could have confidence in knowing that God is your God and that He's real and that He's powerful? 
Hey, wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to have God supernaturally working in your life? You can have that kind of confidence, but it's only going to come from a clear conscience of saying, God, I know I'm not perfect, but I want to have a clean slate with you. I want to live righteous. I want to do right no matter what happens. I think it was Bob Jones Sr. that said, young man, do right if the stars fall. You know, we ought to have that in our heart. God, I'm going to do right no matter what happens. If we would get that kind of attitude, maybe God would use us like He did Jonathan. In Jeremiah 5, verse number 31, Jeremiah says, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? Telling you what, I, I think that in not only in America today, but in the church of America today, it appears that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is practically an obsolete, antiquated thing. Where did the conviction go? What happened to the men of God that would stand up and preach, thus saith the Lord? People don't want to hear. People don't want to hear what their sins are. People don't want to repent. People want to live the way that they're living and they want the preacher to make them feel better about it. My people love to have it so. Hey, there's nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. What was What's going on today was going on in Israel back in Jeremiah's days. And it will continue to be so. The question is, is do you want to be part of that mentality or do you want to be part of the few who follow the Lord like Jonathan did and say, hey, I'm going to get in the battle and I'm going to serve the Lord. Secondly, and I'll go quickly here, a real relationship with Christ is essential in order to have the boldness and the confidence and the courage we need to stand up for God. One of the most lacking things in Christianity today is a real relationship with Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 13, it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they didn't have theological degrees, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't walking around with a with a little white backwards collar. They weren't looking all ministerial. They just looked like a bunch of fishermen or blue-collar workers that had got off work and were out there preaching. But I tell you what the crowd recognized. It says they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Hey, you want to you do something miraculous for God? You don't have to have a degree You don't have to have memorized the Bible. You don't have to have an answer to everyone's question. You just simply have to be willing to follow the Lord. And if you spend time with Jesus Christ on a daily basis, you're going to find some boldness and some confidence that you never ever imagined that you could have. In Acts 4 verse 29, it says, The Lord, and now Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. The world is always going to try to take and put God's people in a box. The world, the devil's going to try to shut our mouths and to quiet us and just say, well, we, you know, well, let's just, let's just be nice. I don't want to ruin their day by witnessing to them. How, how, how would, how would we all like to, when we stand before God, and God says, why didn't you give them a track? Why didn't you witness to them? Why didn't you tell them about Jesus Christ? It's, well, I didn't want to ruin their day. Now, God knows what they would have done. Have you ever handed somebody a gospel track? Just, and, and everything in your mind saying, saying they're going to reject it. You ever had somebody that you just know they're gonna, they're gonna refuse, they're gonna cuss you or whatever, and you hand them that and they go, oh, thank you, and start reading it? How many of that's ever happened to you? We, we have a dear family, so close, I mean, we, we love them dearly in, in Idaho, and my, my daughter had a master club assignment to go and hand out, I think, half a dozen tracks, and 
our neighbors next to us. We had talked, we'd worked with them and talked to them and just, it just didn't seem like nothing was taking. And so, uh, but right before Wednesday night going to, to church, Anna had to get those six doors knocked on. And so it's like, okay, man, I'm late. I got to hurry. All right, come on, Anna. So we started to walk by their house. And Anna says, can we go to their house? And I'm like, no, they don't. We've, we've already tried. They don't seem to be interested. And she said, please. I said, okay, fine. So we knock on their door. Anna's there. She's supposed to be doing the talking. And Anna says, uh, I would like to invite you to church tonight and your kids to go to Master Club. And, um, and uh, Sister D says, we'll be there. They came in, and I mean, God started working, their lives started changing, and next thing you know, they're, they're faithful Christians in church almost every service. You know, God knows. How many times have we thought, oh, I don't want to ruin their day, I don't want to make them awkward, and we worry about their feelings at the expense of their soul? Listen, I'm not saying be obnoxious in your witness. I know that there are times when, you know, your, 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 your waitress is serving you and she's, she's frazzled because she's got more tables to deal with and what she has time. You don't have to give her an entire study of the book of Romans while she's supposed to be serving other tables. We don't have to be obnoxious, but you know what? Something's better than nothing. I know this is one thing that God's been speaking to my heart about that I need to do more of, that I've gotten out of the habit. I need to be a better witness because God wants us to speak the word with boldness and everything in our culture, everything even in modern Christianity is trying to put the vocal witness into a box and then shut the lid on the box. Well, I'll just let my lifestyle be my witness. Hey, how's that working for you? Can can you can can your life? How many times? How many times have you had people line up saying, "Oh, tell me how you got to be so wonderful. How can I get in on your secret and be wonderful like you?" Oh, I'll just yeah, I'll just I'll just live a good life and be nice to people and then they'll come and they'll beg for my secret. It doesn't work. Let your light shine. This The gospel is the light. Jesus is the light. We've got, yeah, our life needs to back it up. But don't think that we're not supposed to speak up and tell other people. If this Bible is true and people without Christ are going to die and go to hell, what more motivation do we need than that? I would say it's important. I would say that it's urgent. And I would say that it's eternal. When is somebody going to stand up? Acts 4.31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. Hey, folks, we need a real relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not, for sake of time, I'm not going to take you to Isaiah 1, but you might want to write that down, Isaiah 1, verse 2 through 5, and you'll see once again, God is pleading with His people to have a real... He says the, the ox know their crib, the, the, the animals know the barn, but He said, my people don't even know me. It's one thing to know about God, it's another thing to know God. Listen, if you want to have some boldness and confidence, you need to have a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And then my last point, uh, sorry, it's not my last point. But I am hurrying. Number three, experience and endurance. You know, I'm just in a good mood today. Is that okay? Just in a good mood, enjoying preaching, and I don't want to keep you here till one. Notice I didn't say I wasn't going to. I'm not going to. All right. Experience and endurance. Philippians 1 verse 14, And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What about that? Here's Paul. He's in bonds. 
he's been put in jail for preaching the gospel. And, and the, the average mind would think, oh no, now the gospel is going to be hindered because the evangelist, the missionary, just got put in prison. Oh no, God's going to lose. You know what God did? He worked that together for good. And because of Paul's faithfulness, even though he was imprisoned, God's people, they were encouraged. It's like, you know what? Paul's not whining and complaining about his circumstances. He's rejoicing. He's still writing us letters. And he's still preaching to the guards. He's still doing whatever he can. If he can do that in prison, with I mean, with a death sentence, getting ready to lose his head, maybe we can do the same thing. You know what, brothers and sisters? We don't have it that bad. But we shouldn't wait till somebody gets persecuted till we stand up and say it's time to be bold for the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2.2, But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Contention. That's a little bit of fighting going on. And that's the Christian life, and we are in a battle for the souls of men. And sometimes it just takes some experience and endurance, toughing out your circumstances. Don't let the devil shut your mouth. Don't let the devil back you into a corner. Just stay faithful to the Lord. And even though you may not win anybody to Christ, but your faithfulness might inspire somebody else who will start witnessing, and they may win somebody to Christ. It's contagious. You know, a lot of people in our church are sick. A lot of people, I mean, it seems like every time I turn around, somebody's catching the flu. And uh, we make sure that we got hand sanitizer and we wear masks and we, I mean, we do all of these things to try not to catch something bad. I, I fear that the average believer does the same thing with not trying not to catch something good. Oh, I don't want to get too excited. I don't want to get too zealous. Let's not get crazy with this God stuff. Let's just get a little bit, little bit of God enough that I can manage Him. And the whole time we're afraid that we're, we don't want to catch a full-blown case of God. My last point, number four. Confidence in heaven is key to confidence on earth. Hebrews 10.19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We're not worthy. We can't look at ourselves. We've got to look at our worthiness through the blood of Jesus Christ because that's the way that God sees us. Ephesians 3.12, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. I don't think I've got enough faith to do that. It's okay, brother. It's okay, sister. He's got enough faith for you and I to do whatever we're supposed to do. And then 1 John 4.17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. Hey, I'm not... I'm, I'm a little concerned, for obvious reasons, about the judgment seat of Christ. That's when God's going to take my life and He's going to put it all together, and He's going to put it through the fire. And there's going to be things in my life that burn up, wood, hay, and stubble. The only thing that I'm going to have when that fire is done is the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. I'm a little concerned about that. I don't want my whole life to just go up in flames and smoke. I want to have some rewards. I want to have something afterward. But you know, when I stand before God at the great white throne of judgment, as I stand before Him, and if, if God were to ask me, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I give you eternal life? I'm not afraid of that question. I'm not afraid of that question because I know the answer of my heart is not, well, God, I pastored that church for all those years. I witnessed to those people I gave of my offerings. I, I, I love people and I visited people in the hospital and I did this, this, and this. Listen, I'm not even going to be thinking about that. That's all irrelevant. 
I'm going to have confidence and boldness because I'm going to say, because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross of Calvary, because of your precious blood, I received it as you said I was supposed to, and I believed it, and I called upon you to save me, and you saved me, and it's because of that. That's my only plea. That's my only claim to enter into a holy heaven. The closer we get to God, the more aware we are of His holiness. The more aware of His holiness we become, the more vital it is to understand that Jesus Christ is the only thing that satisfies a holy God. Conclusion. Philippians 1 verse 20 says, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. The ultimate result of our boldness and confidence should be to glorify Christ and not ourself. I close with verse 23 of our text. If you're still in 1 Samuel 14, I want you to notice in verse 23, It says, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Bethaven. God wrought a great victory. Why? Because of Jonathan's faith and his obedience to the Lord and his willingness to put his life on the line and to stand up and to do something. It's time to stand up and speak out. It's time to do right. It's time to get in the fight. Will you bow your heads as we ask the Lord to help us. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the great victory that you wrought through Jonathan and his armor bearer. We thank you, Lord, that we still have the same promises today, that we can have confidence and boldness, boldness to serve you, boldness to witness for you, boldness to live righteous lives and to be salt and light in the world around us. I thank you, Lord, that you've made provision for our failures through the blood of Jesus Christ, and I just pray that you'd help us to be willing to stand up in a day and age when so many are hiding in the caves, fleeing to another country. So many Christians are living lives trying to be, I guess, spies for you, Christians in disguise. I pray, God, that you'd speak to someone's heart today that would be willing to say, I'm ready to start living a real Christian life. I'm tired of hiding in the cave. I'm tired of not helping the cause. God, would you speak to that heart here today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.